the spirit whose coming was foretold to me. I am. Who and what are you? I am the ghost of Christmas past. Long past. No, your past. What is your business here with me? You're well, sir. I will fail. Your inclination. Take heed, rise, and walk with me. to fall. Bear but a touch of my hand and you shall be upheld in more than this. deserted it looks. Not quite deserted. A solitary boy yourself, Ebenezer, forgotten by his friends, is left there still. I know. Well, I wanted to introduce to you again our character that uh, we've been talking about starting last week as we have been teaching the series we entitled An American Christmas Carol and how America has been Scrooged. And uh, I'm using clips from different uh, Christmas carols. As you can see, this is a little bit different than the one last week. And there's some great ones, so it's hard telling which one will come up from week to week. But I wanted to introduce to you as we gave you an introduction this morning to our main character, his name, as you will recall, is Ebenezer Scrooge. He is the one that Charles Dickens wrote of in 1843 as that covetous old sinner, Ebenezer Scrooge. And as you will recall, Scrooge and England uh, during that particular time period uh, represents to me in some ways, I think, a prophetic picture of our own nation, America. You know, the scripture tells us in Revelation chapter 3 concerning the Laodicean church, which many believe to be the picture of the church of the last days. And it was there that Jesus said of this church, he said, you are rich and yet you are poor. He said, you're clothed and yet you're naked. He said, you have eyes to see and yet you're blind and you have ears to hear and yet you're deaf and seemingly you're totally free and yet, in all reality, you're totally bound. And so last Sunday, I shared to you how Scrooge, America, and maybe all of us really need an awakening. And that's where we are today. Now, an awakening really entails an intervention of sorts. That is really what the Christmas story is all about, is it not? That God gave humanity a personal intervention in the sending of His Son, Jesus Christ. In fact, I think I posted on Facebook, I said, Christmas is a God intervention taking us into divine rehab so that we all can have a personal makeover. It's the best reality show you'll ever walk into. An intervention. We all need an intervention. An intervention requires, I think, at least three things, all of which I think are epitomized in the three visits that Scrooge receives on Christmas Eve. And for the next three weeks, are you getting it? Three? For the next three weeks, I'm going to expound on the need for our nation and really ourselves, because the nation is just a reflection, really, of its population. I'm going to just talk a little bit in these next three weeks about how we need to come to terms with these three areas. 
And for me, as I read the book, The Christmas Carol, or whether you watch one of the renditions of it, to me, it was Dickens' uh, uh, vehicle by which he wanted to just have give a wake-up call to his nation. And I believe it can be used as God's wake-up call to this nation. Because I'm not sure true transformation can happen to a person or a nation until they face certain things. And so, this morning, uh, we're going to our second message, and I've entitled this second message, Coming to Grips with Our Past. Coming to Grips with Our Past. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to be reading out of Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. And uh, believe it or not, there's a Christmas passage in Galatians, not just out of the Gospels. Galatians 4, beginning with verse 1. Listen to what Paul writes. He says, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is master of all. I'll untangle this in just a moment. But he says an heir, if he's a child, does not differ from a slave, though he's master of all. But he's under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the father. Even so, we, when we were children were in bondage. Everyone say, I was in bondage. Say that. Come on, we got to come to terms with our past. I was in bondage. We were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive the adoption as sons. Or, if we make it genderless, sons and daughters. Aren't you glad, women, that it includes you as well? Amen. How we need to come to grips with our past. I was reading this particular passage, and I kind of like how Paul synopsizes all of the Christmas passages of the Gospel. He reminds the church at Galatia, through using the birth of Jesus, he reminds them that they all had a past. How many of you know everybody here has a past? Now, my wife, I know, was, was saved and, and, and she responded to the Lord about eight years of age or somewhere in that particular area. My children made commitments to the Lord at eight years of age. And that's a wonderful thing if you can come to know the Lord early, early in life. In fact, our, our, our hope here is that your children do not have to face the scars many of their parents faced. That is our hope. But it does not matter at what age you come to Jesus, all of us have a past. All of us have something in the closet. All of us have something that's back there that would qualify us for some of the things he says here in chapter 4, where it says that even though they were an heir, uh, they were still under a bondage. There was a time all of us were slaves. There were all of us, all of us had a moment that we were immature. And so Paul tells the church at Galatia that much like Scrooge, they're in bondage and they are in chains, even though they may not have realized it. And he says that they're in chains to the elements. I like that word, elements of this world. Now, the original language, the word elements, and I think I posted it on the screen overhead. The word elements literally means a triangle on a sundial. Now, what in the world does that have to do with being in bondage to something like that? I just started to let my mind kind of wander. How I many of you know some of us are in bondage to time? We're, we're, we're in bondage to our watches. We're in bondage to our calendars. We're, we're in bondage to what a lot of times the world sets as our schedules. The world sets as our priorities. A lot of times we're under the world's influence because if everything runs on a time schedule, it's interesting how we can fall bondage to it. The word means things like that. It intimates things like that. It also uh, intimates, as you are calling a sundial, and having to deal with the sun and as the sun moved across the sky, the shadow of the clock would begin to point to different numbers. And uh, I think Paul also meant things that are fading away. A lot of us are bound to things that are elementary things, silly things, things that are, are fading away. You know, America is bound to things that are fading away. We're bound to silly things. Do you know that cars and houses and boats and jet skis and motorcycles will all fade away. I remind myself of this, that one of these days, if Jesus tarries, somebody else's name is going to be on the deed and the mortgage to my house because I don't live forever. 
I don't get to own it forever. You can't take it with you. And we're bound to silly things in America, fading things. We are addicted to power. We're addicted to prestige. We're, we're addicted to the drugs and the alcohol and the celebrity and the sports stars and the musicians. I mean, uh, we, we had championship games. I'm not going to get into this too deeply right now. We had championship games over the weekend. And, 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 and people are devastated. Well, I would have liked for my team to have won. But you know what? I'm not bound to that. I'm a little sad when I'm not jumping off the top of the mall. But we're bound to element and elementary things, silly things. Isn't it funny? We, we have reality shows I put down here that, that now nationwide and worldwide, you can have a camera invade the most private of your moments so that everybody can see up front and central your dysfunction. I don't know that I want a camera that bad in my house. But yet we are obsessed with this. We're, we're bound to these things. We're bound to celebrity. We get to peer into people's chaos. And you know, I oftentimes wonder if we like peering into people's chaos because somehow it causes us to normalize our chaos. So we feel better about ourselves. We, we say, well, you know, at least we aren't the Kardashians. Well, isn't that a high standard? Our chains and our bondages have caused us to be dysfunctional. And Scrooge, our character, defines dysfunction. He thinks he has life all together. He thinks he's put together. He thinks he's got a handle on it. He thinks he's got everything that's important and that matters at his disposal and his fingertips. And he thinks he's just fine and he doesn't get that he is not right. I'm telling you, there are times America and Americans are not much better. We think we've got it all together. We look right. We dress right. We have the amenities around us. We think that we're the biggest, greatest, most powerful thing on the block. And we think for some reason it's just always going to be that way. I can tell you that Rome felt that way and Rome is no longer at the top of the heap. Greece felt that way. Greece is no longer a superpower. Persia at one time felt that way. Persia is no longer a superpower. And I'm telling you, God God is not obligated to our nation. We are dysfunctional. We are much like Scrooge. So what do we need? We need an intervention. So God sent us an intervention. The intervention was through His Son, Jesus. Now, the key to getting right is first understanding, I believe, that you did not get there overnight. Whether it's a person or a nation, no one wakes up one morning bound and chained and addicted and dysfunctional, chaotic and crazy. I know, I know sometimes when you're awakened to that moment, you think it happened overnight, but truly it doesn't. I, I have been a pastor since I was 24 years old. You've heard this before. I've got 27 years under my belt doing the work of the ministry, which, by the way, in that 27 years, been married to the first woman, same woman, all through those years. Hallelujah. Isn't that great? I'm venerating that because you just don't find that much anymore. In 27 years, I've had, I would think, thousands of people come through my office and they're all good people, sweet people. They want help. That's why they're there. And they'll look at me and a lot of times their life is just falling apart. It is, it is chaotic. It is dysfunctional at so many levels. And they'll look, and I know they mean well when they say this, but they say, Pastor, I don't know how I got here. It just happened. No, it didn't. It didn't just happen. There have been things that are happening probably for some time that have now finally caught up to your life. You see, America did not fall apart just because of the last election. You understand that, don't you? Our problem didn't start because Republicans had it or Democrats had it. Our problem started years ago. America is reaping some of what it has sowed. That is true. 
I'll say it again. I believe we're an exceptional nation, but we're only exceptional when we honor the Lord. And we can, we can one more time apprehend that exceptionalism because whatever nation uh, uh, apprehends the Lord, whatever nation honors the Lord, God will exalt that nation. But if we choose to walk away from Him and if we choose to embrace our dysfunctionalities, God will allow us to spin out of chaotic control until finally we, we are broken and we are at the bottom of the barrel. And America did not reach the place America is today with all of the issues that I just began last week to mention to you. And I'm going to mention some more next week. But it, we didn't get here because it just happened within the last, oh, you know, year, two, five, maybe tops. I mean, incrementally, incrementally, step by step, little by little, We've been going down a path that we've refused to acknowledge until the moment has come that I believe the only hope for many, many people, and I do believe the only hope for our nation, is a nation-shaking renewal and revival and awakening. I mean the likes of which that we hadn't seen maybe in a century or two. I mean, that's where we're at. I mean, we have been like the proverbial frog in the... The bucket that's got the heat underneath. You know the story. You, you put the frog in the bucket over the burner and at first the frog doesn't feel anything. And the water just begins to heat up slowly but surely and the frog never jumps out because it doesn't perceive what's going on around it until the moment comes you've got boiled frog legs. And America needs to perceive and we need to perceive and we need to do our part to be the prophetic voice of the church. To help it perceive what it is that's going on. And I honestly believe that you never get free until you grasp at some level how you got to where you are. Coming to grips with your past. Now, I want to make a statement here before I go through this progression. And the statement is this. While we are never victims of our past, and while we're never bound to our past, isn't that good news? I don't care what environment you grew up in. You are not a victim to your environment. You say, you don't understand where I came from. You don't understand the house I grew up in. You don't understand. You don't understand. You don't understand. And you're right. I may not understand. And you're not a victim to that. You're not bound to your environment. But listen to me very carefully. While I believe we can spring you out and while I believe you can be a a new generation, and I believe you can get a new start. You need to understand, though, how the past has influenced you in order that not only you can get free, but that you can stay free. See, our problem is a lot of people think that their environment is normal. And if you never understand that your environment's not normal, we can, we can lay hands on you, we can pray in tongues over you, we can spit on you and, and push you down, and we can do anything to you. And it won't matter until you understand that, that, that we are surrounded by a hostile environment. We are surrounded in chaotic times. And do you understand that the, the, the little semblance of normalcy that any of us ever get is probably the couple hours we spend in the house of God. For most of us, that's the only normal we get. Most of the time and most of the week, we're out there in abnormal, chaotic dysfunctional times. And we need to understand that, that until we get a hold of that's not normal, the world's not normal. Jesus said, you may be in the world, but you're not of the world. That's why he said, and that word of doesn't mean that we just all cloister ourselves in monasteries and we all become monks, you know, and, and, and somehow we separate ourselves from in, inter, interacting or engaging with the world. That's not what Jesus meant. That word means that you're not cut out of the same mold as the world. You're not cut out of the same cloth. You may be in the world, but you're not cut out of the same mold. That's how come I'm not looking to be like the world. I'm looking to be like Him. That's the mold I'm cut out of. My relevancy to the world is this. It's not that I look like you or act like you or even talk like you. There may be a little bit of a connection I can provide at that point. But here's my relevancy. My relevancy is this. I'm normal. That's not normal. It's not. We, we look at our chaos and we say, wow, they're, they're in chaos, so chaos must be normal. No, it's not. No, it's not. It can be different. It can change. Isn't that good news? That it can be normal again. And, and, and so 
we've got to understand our past. And so I want to go through this progression and I'm going to use several clips here. And I think actually I use this older version. It's amazing. It's a 1951 version. But I was struck, and I think you will be too, by just how prophetic and relevant some of the things you'll see on the screen is as far as how Scrooge went through this progression that he had to come to grips with. He had to come to grips with his past before, as the spirit that visited him said, you could be reclaimed. So the first thing that happened to Scrooge was that Scrooge had a father wound. He had a father wound. Now, the lights are going to go dim. Watch the screen overhead and see how it worked out in his life. Nobody else ever cared for me. Nobody else ever will. You must live forever, Fan. Oh, dear brother, what nonsense. Everyone loves you very much. You must forgive Papa and forget the past. For our dearest mother's sake. Oh, Fan. Sister was always a delicate creature whom a breath might have withered, but she had a large heart. She had. She died a married woman and had, I think, children. What a child. True, your nephew. She died giving him life. As your mother died giving you life, for which your father never forgave you, as if you were to blame. That's called a father wound. Scrooge had been rejected by his own dad because when his mother gave him birth, uh, she died in childbirth. And conversely, when uh, his sister gave birth to his nephew, she died as well, which was an open sore even in Scrooge's life, which we'll see in a moment, that uh, caused him just to be dysfunctional in even greater ways. But the key was the father wound. And this is why here as of late, I've had such a burden, guys, for you. Because I believe America has a gaping father wound that it needs to be healed and that needs to be addressed. Do you know that the last passage in the Old Testament, in the book of Malachi, Malachi 4, verse 6, guys, if you have it, if you could post it, it says this. It says that he, meaning the Lord, will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to their fathers lest I come and strike the earth with a curse. Do you understand that the reason I think we're in a cursed situation right now is because we are in a fatherless generation? I, I mean, I, I, I want to get into just how Joseph in the Christmas story, can you imagine 
what it took for Joseph to be able to receive Mary, his betrothed, despite the fact that she's giving testimony that the Holy Ghost had overshadowed her and she, what was inside of her, the child that was inside of her was born of the Lord. And, and, and can you imagine how challenging that would have been for a Joseph? To have heard that news and yet embraced her anyway and became the earthly father of Jesus. I mean, a lot could be said about Joseph in the Christmas story and about how great of a dad he ended up being. But you see, that verse, that prophetic verse indicates to us that the Lord knew that there was going to come a time in the earth that there was going to be great alienation and a great fracturing that was going to take place between children and their fathers. And there's a father wound that needs fixing. I mean, is it not amazing to you how many... I just have thought about this. And, and, and there's a lot of single ladies in our church that are raising up kids. God bless you. Single ladies that are raising up children. Because for whatever reason, fathers exited the picture. And, and we're going to do our best to, to reach and minister. And, and we'll do all that we can. Uh, as a church, but we are living in a generation that we need to awaken to the fact, and guys, I'm talking to you and to me, to all of us, that we have a, an important role and an important responsibility. Pastor Larry Stockstill, who, you know, we're related to, uh, tells the story about meeting an NFL player, and this NFL player, National Football League player, um, was actually a pretty good professional player, but his dad never came to any of his games. His dad never came to his high school games, never came to his college games, didn't even come to his professional games. In fact, as the story goes, this man would leave tickets for his dad, but his dad would never show up at the will call gate in order to pick up the free tickets. Until one day he made a special phone call and asked his dad to come to a game. And his dad said that he would. And so he left the tickets and his, his dad showed up and he was sitting in the seats that were there reserved for him and he could see him from the playing field. It was the first time his dad had ever come to see him play football. And, and despite the fact that he was a professional football player, there was something about having his dad in the stands that just affirmed him in a way that no amount of money or celebrity or anything else could affirm him. And it so inspired him that on that particular game, he had the game of his career. He was a, he was a defensive lineman. He had five unassisted tackles. He actually had blocked a field goal. He had the game of his life in front of his dad who was in the stands. And he ran after the game to see his dad who was sitting up in the stands. And all he wanted to hear from his dad was, good job, son, or I'm proud of you, son. But the dad looked at him and, and, and said to him, hey, wh why'd you let that little guy run around you like that? And do you realize from that moment on, that professional football player's life spun out of control? That's our society, guys. That's where we're living right now. There's no affirmation. I understand where we biologically function as men. We're living in a society now where we'll bet anything. If it has a skirt, we'll jump on it. But it doesn't take a man to procreate. It takes a man to father. We got the biology part down. We got to get the relational part down because we're fracturing our society. Too many single-parent homes. Too many people uh, uh, not making their covenantal commitments. Too many people not taking the relationship serious. Do you understand that this, isn't, that this nation doesn't exist because somehow we just say it exists. It exists because the most basic of frameworks are in order. And the most basic framework is one man, one woman with their children in one household living normal. Normal. Alright? And I'll, if you want me to get into it, I'll get into it. God made Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. How about that? Come on now, there's a father wound that's happening. So, that's where Scrooge started. This wound took place. Out of this wound, it's interesting that whenever you're wounded, the enemy is opportune. Whenever he sees a wound... Isn't that interesting? Have you ever watched an animal that was dying? Maybe you never had opportunity. I lived on a farm, so I, I saw lots of things you wouldn't normally see. But, but if there's an animal that's dying, a lot of times what you'll see overhead, and maybe you've seen it in movies, are those buzzards. They start circling a dying, wounded animal. 
Do you know why those buzzards are circling? Because they know those wounds can produce the opening for them to attack and for them to finish the animal off or, or use it for a feeding fod or whatever the case may be. That's a lot like the enemy. Whenever the enemy sees a wound in your life, he's like a buzzard. And he starts circling you. Because he knows that wound is eventually going to bring you to a place that uh, you're going to be ripe for the picking. That's why it's so important to get healed from wounds. But, but, if, but if the initial wound doesn't necessarily take you out, what it does become is what we call an open door. That wound becomes an open door for the enemy to provide other opportunities for you to be offended, for you to uh, uh, be traumatized, for you to go any one of a number of directions. Because understand, uh, Jesus came that you might have life and that more abundantly. But the enemy came in order to steal, to kill, and to destroy. And there's always pleasure in sin for a season. Sin is always fun for a little while. I'll be the first one. I'll just declare, yeah, sin's fun for a little while because it may satisfy the issues of the flesh. But ultimately, sin is a lot like cotton candy. You can eat it for a day or two, but after a while, it never satisfies. And there comes a moment in, in all of that that you find out that it's leading you to a place of death. Now, what happened to Scrooge was that out of the wound, he became ripe for injustice, unfairness, or a trauma that ultimately produced a bitterness. Look at what happened on the screen. No, spirit, not here. Yes, here. Then, it's me, your brother. Do you know me? Ebenezer, I sent for you. Promise me. Promise you what, Phil? I'll promise you anything, dearest. Only that there isn't going to be any need. You're going to get well again, Phil. No. You are. You are. Dear God, you must. Phil, you, you, you can't die. Phil, you mustn't die. You're going to get well again, Fan. Fan, you're going to get well again. Forgive me, Fan. Forgive me. Forgive me, Fan. Forgive me, Fan. That was the dramatic account of the trauma of Fan giving birth to his nephew, and obviously she passed away. She died in childbirth. And so Scrooge begins to do to his nephew the very thing his father did to him. The wound that he'd received from his father opened a door that allowed the injustice that he thought or the unfairness to see what ultimately would become his root of bitterness. Now, how many of you know there's a lot of bitterness in America today? There's bitterness over layoffs. There's bitterness over lost jobs. There's bitterness 
because people were overlooked for promotions. They're bitter, they're bitter because they aren't married or they're bitter because they're in a bad marriage. They're bitter because of how life has generally turned out for them. The Hebrew writer said that bitterness defiles you and is literally an open door for sexual sin and godless living. So you can't stay bitter and stay right with God. And I've even found in my own personal life that that when you're dealing with bitterness, if you don't take care of bitterness, it, it, it is deadly. It'll, it'll shut down your destiny. It'll shut down your future. And it'll shut down all the good things that God may want to do in your life. And out of his wound, his father wound, a trauma came into his life. Through that trauma, he begins to experience bitterness. And out of the bitterness, he begins to make, number three, what I call inner vows. And those vows created idols and fractured relationships. And I just want you to watch again the screen because you're going to see the progression of a man and how he got to where he was. Guys, go ahead and play it. You are. Then you no longer love me. You no longer love me. When have I ever said that? In words, never. Well, in what then? In the way you have changed. But how have I changed towards you? By changing towards the world. But it, it, it is such a terrible thing for a man to struggle with something better than he is. Another idol has replaced me in your heart. A golden idol. It's singular. The world that can be so brutally cruel to the poor professes to condemn the pursuit of wealth in the same breath. You fear the world too much. <laughs> with reason. But I, 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 I am not changed towards you. Aren't you? Our promise is an old one. It was made when we were both poor and content to be so. If you had never made that promise, tell me, would you seek me out and try to win me now? Of course I would. No. If you were free today, would you choose a darless girl with, with neither wealth nor social standing? You who now weigh everything by gain? It would bring you nothing but repentance and regret. That is why I released you. You know I'm right then. I must bow to your conviction that you are. May you be happy in the life you have chosen. Thank you. I shall be. Goodbye. Show me no more. But I told you, these were but shadows of the things that have been. That they are what they are, do not blame me. Take me away. Very well. But we have not done yet, Ebenezer Scrooge. We do but turn another page. So his wound provides an open door in order to provide him a ripe scenario for a trauma or an injustice or an unfairness to come into his life. And out of that unfairness produces a bitterness. Through the bitterness comes vows. You've heard some of the vows. That he was chasing idols. He was chasing money. You begin to make promises to yourself. On the inside, I will, I will never be poor. I will, I will never find myself in a situation like that. I will never. In fact, anytime you ever start a phrase out with I will never, you're probably entering into a vow. I will never, I'll never be like my mom. I'm never going to be like my dad. And then you turn out just being like your mom or like your dad. I, I, I will never, I will never do this again. I will never. That's why you hear me say, I never say never anymore. <laughs> I, I usually phrase it, it is highly unlikely. That's what he did. Scrooge vowed. He vowed that he would never be poor. He grew up in, in, in a poor situation. He grew up watching all of these things. And, and out of that vow comes a reaping, which is what was beginning to happen. He, he vowed that the harshness of the world would be met with his own hardness. And so his money became an idol. His marriage was unimportant. 
Now, you know, this, the film was in 1951. The book was written in 1843. Is it any wonder that the ecclesiastic writer says, is there anything new under the sun? Nothing new under the sun. In fact, it's interesting. There's a, there's a scene that uh, Marley, his partner, and he are meeting. And they both connect over the fact that they both have made these vows. They're bitter on their perspectives of the world. And can I just share this with you? It's, it's not Bible, but it's a pretty good phrase. It says, birds of a feather flock together. You ever heard of that one? You know what's really interesting to me? It's interesting to me how bitter people always find bitter people. And how negative people will always find negative people. If you ever wonder what's in your spirit, just take a moment and be honest enough and ask yourself, what is it you attract? Because if all you attract are bitter, negative people, then chances are there could be something in there that, that's, that's a magnet that's bringing you all together. But, but if, if you've uh, 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 found a place of healing and you've found a place of release, it's amazing how God will begin to give you new friends as well. See, I think America as a nation has experienced certain traumas. Traumas that I don't think we've ever gotten through. I believe they've provided open doors and I don't believe we want to reconcile it find it restored. I'm just going to throw a few of these out. I believe that when we had a civil war or the war between the states, so many now decades ago, and I mean decade after decade, a century and a half ago, to this day, we are still unhealed as a people over the wounds that took place over that particular time period. And to this day, there is still bitterness in black communities and there is bitterness in white communities. And we're just unwilling to come to terms with the fact that it's time to forgive and let go and be healed so we can prosper together. But you see, we don't understand that as a nation. We perpetuate it as a nation. We perpetuate old wounds. We perpetuate old animosities. It's interesting to me that every time there's a national trauma, it's an opportunity for the enemy to come in. Do you know that when our president, John F. Kennedy, was assassinated, do you not think it interesting or more than coincidental that, that when he was assassinated and the nation went into national mourning and it was a national trauma, is it not interesting that a door was flung open wide and almost unnoticeable, that, that a new music came in from England and the Beatles and, and singing songs like Hey Jude, which has to do with heroin and LSD and all sorts of things, and there's a whole new generation that grows up that smoke and dope and, 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 and promiscuous behavior. And how did all that get started? Have you ever asked yourself, how do these things get started? There was an open door in our nation. A trauma. And all of a sudden, Satan exploits those traumas. Until now we have a generation that is now called the baby boomers who are now giving leadership in our nation. Have mercy. And, and all of a sudden we're, 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 we're struggling as a nation to know what it is that we'll even say yes and no to. We're so worried about offending someone that we won't stand in truth anymore. And it's because of an open door that, that brought in an exploitation of the enemy and now we find ourselves reaping the whirlwind from those happenings. I believe, I believe that when, when Nixon was president and Watergate took place and all that debacle happened, I'll be an equal opportunity offender of both Republicans and Democrats, that when that door opened up, there was a national vow that was made. Vows that said, I will never be that. I will never do that. I will never, never, never. And now all of a sudden, when we saw corruption on the main stage, and we said to ourselves, we're never going to allow that to happen again. We are more corrupt than ever. It is a cesspool in our government. I, I know enough people behind the scenes in government that look at me and tell me that they're losing sleep at night and we don't want to know what goes on behind the curtains anymore. How did that happen? How did we get there? Trauma takes place and in through the door, the enemy exploits it. I'm going to be honest with you. On 9-11, there was a national trauma that took place in this nation. And unless we understand what happened at that particular moment, because I understand people flooded to the house of God the day after 9-11. We were all soft towards God. But you see, what happened was we didn't get serious with God. We all grabbed arms. We crossed the divide with all of the parties. We all sang God bless America and kumbaya on the, on the stage of the you know, nation's capital. 
and everybody felt so fuzzy and we're all Americans. But you see, we didn't get it right at that moment. It just became an open door that the enemy is exploiting at this particular moment. And now we're wrestling not only with secularism and humanism, but folks, we're struggling with whether or not Sharia is going to be established in our own nation. You go to Michigan and you see if these things aren't real. These are traumas. And I'm telling you, as a nation, we need national revival because unless God, by His hand, moves upon us again, that causes a deep sense of repentance and forgiveness to come back to us, these doors are wide open for the exploitation of the enemy. It happens that way in individuals' lives. It's happening that way in national life. Whenever there's a trauma that happens in your life, God forbid, and I hate that it happened, but some of you were abused growing up. Some of you were in abusive relationships with a spouse. Some of you were sexually molested. Some of you had God-awful things, traumatic things. Some of you lost your parents early in life. Some of you experienced traumas I can't even begin to imagine. Did God cause it? No, I don't believe God caused it. He can use all things to work together for good to those that love Him and are called according to a purpose. He can use it to build character within you and cause you to, to enlarge and seek Him and, and yearn after Him. These things can be uh, a point of being used by God. But those traumas happen. And if you don't get over it, if you don't forgive, if you don't let that root of bitterness get torn out of you, if you don't close the door, if you don't let it be shut, I'm telling you, the enemy's exploiting you to this day because of those traumas. He's exploiting you. Your whole life, you say to yourself, my life wouldn't be this way if that hadn't happened then. Can I share this with you? You are not bound to that happening. Yes, it was unfair. Yes, it was unjust. Yes, it was traumatic. Yes, it wasn't fair. We agree. Everybody raises their hand and says, that's right, it shouldn't have happened to you. But the enemy is now using it for the rest of your life to lead you to destruction. And it is time that you were reclaimed for the cause of the kingdom. And you were reclaimed for your airship in, in Him. And it can be done. And we're seeing this time and time again. And, and finally, it led to, to corruption. It led to his corruption. I want to show you this. All of these things happened to Scrooge until he finally reaches the point. You'll see on the screen overhead. Watch this. May we hear those figures, Mr. Snedbridge? Uh, at your pleasure. Uh, certainly, Mr. Groper. Well, gentlemen, after 17 years of existence, the Amalgamated Mercantile Society's books show the startling figures of a liability of 3,200 pounds, eight shillings and tenpence, and a total asset of 11 pounds, eight shillings and tenpence. Well, at least the tenpences cancel each other out. How much of this is the company's capital? All of it, Mr. Rosebed. In short, sir, you're not only a bankrupt, you're an embezzler of the company's funds. I also beat my wife and skewer innocent babies when in my cups. Take a very cool attitude, if I may say so, son. So do Mr. Scrooge and Mr. Marley. They're not facing prosecution for a capital offense. Oh, but gentlemen, it could have been any one of you. We're all cutthroats under this fancy linen, Mr. Snedrig. I must ask you to speak for yourself, Mr. Jorking. And what would you gain to prosecute me? All you'd get out of it is about 11 pounds on. And to pack me off to Botany Bay would be poor compensation for the panic that would arise among the shareholders. Panic, sir? Yes, panic. Would any of you gentlemen care to deny that if this juicy little scandal leaked out now, the annual shareholders' meeting would resemble an orchestra of scorched cats? Result? Bankruptcy all round. Strike that speech out of the minutes. Yes, sir. Mr. Joking doesn't exaggerate the imprudence of allowing his misdemeanors to be made public. Are you in sympathy with Mr. Joking by any chance, Mr. Scrooge? Not, I confess, with his methods. But Mr. Marley and I have a proposition to make to the representatives of the company, which might solve some of the difficulties to our general advantage. The devil you have. You want to watch these two fellows, you know. They'd skin Jack Catch alive and he'd never know they've done it. Can we hear the proposition? Mr. Marley and myself are prepared to make good out of our own private resources, a sum of money appropriated by Mr. Joking. <laughs> Reprieved! Reprieved! Curfew shall not ring tonight, Mr. Snedry. Order, order! In return, we wish to be allowed the option of buying up further shares in the company. 
to a maximum of 51% of the total. In short, gentlemen, if you wish to save the fair name of the company by accepting their generous offer, ha, they become the company. Never, never, never. 1%. Out of the question. Never. never. 51%. One out of the question. Also out of order, Mr. Scrooge. See, it doesn't happen overnight, does it? It doesn't just happen. It's never pastor. It just happened. And through, uh, originally, the father wound that took place, exploited by the enemy through injustice, unfairness, and trauma, it creates the place where you begin to make vows and idols. It leads you to the place that you never thought you'd be, and that's in deception and corruption. And that is where we currently are as a nation. There are backroom deals, unrighteous exploitation. There is corruption at every level. And we all know it. That's, that's the sad part about it is, is that when I, when I declare this out loud, it's not as if we all don't know it. The question is, will we address it? And the most personal question is, it starts in us. Before we look anywhere else, it starts in here. Will you address that which exists in your own life? You see, you can't go forward unless you first come to grips with your past. And even with salvation, do you understand that if you're saved here this morning, you understand that b before you ever entered into newness of life, God asked certain things of you, and this is what He asked. He asked that you confess your sins. And, and in the confession of sins, what you're doing is you're acknowledging your past. You are, you are dealing with that which you've done, which was which was wrong before God. You were dealing with that which alienated you from God. And so he asked, he said that you would confess your sins and you would begin to seek forgiveness. Now, most of this is birthed, praise God, out of us when we begin to feel some sense of guilt. Real quickly, guys, throw that up there. The nature of guilt. You know, there's good guilt. And in just a moment, I'm going to tell you about bad guilt. Good guilt is the conviction of the Holy Spirit concerning things that have never been addressed in your life. Now, when I say never been addressed, I mean never been addressed by the Lord. In other words, if, if you're doing things that displease the Lord and you feel guilty about it, can I just say this? Praise God. Because that mechanism, really it's the conscience, was put inside of you in order that it might be that register, that Geiger counter, that, that place in you, that alarm system that goes off that says, when you do this, I feel guilty. And, and that's good because that's conviction. And God brings conviction. It's His way of talking to us and saying, this is something you need to deal with. This is something that needs to be put under the blood, to be repented of, to be put away in your life. There's some verses there that talks about how God wants to cleanse your conscience. He doesn't want you to live under, under guilt. Now, there's bad guilt. Flash to the next uh, slide, please. Bad guilt. It's, it's the condemnation of the devil concerning things that you've confessed and put under the blood of Jesus. Now, the reason I share this with you as well is because I know for some of you, you're constantly beating yourself up about the past. You know what? If you have come before the Lord and you've asked for forgiveness, you've repented of those sins, you're walking in the light as he is in the light, his blood continually cleanses you. And if the enemy is keep is, 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 is staying with you and beating you over the head with your past sins and mistakes. That is called condemnation. And Romans 8, 1 says, Now therefore there is no condemnation in them that are in Christ Jesus. Here's the good news. Yeah, did I, did I party and live for the devil before I was saved? The answer is yes. You would not have wanted to know me pre-Jesus. I lived hard. I, I lived untirelessly uh, for the enemy. I did things I'm ashamed of. I wish I could go back and rearrange and change. I can't go back and you can't go back either. But you can confess those sins. You can get them under the blood. You can make your way to the cross. You can repent of them. You can walk in newness of life. All things have passed away. All things have become new. You are a new creature in Christ Jesus. And you know what? If the enemy comes and tries to remind me of those days, all I have to say is they're under the blood. God doesn't even know them anymore. They're in the sea of His forgetfulness. As far as the east is from the west, He reckons me to those sins no more. That's bad guilt. But if last night 
I partied hardy and I got drunk and I slept around or I committed adultery or I fornicated or I lied or I cheated or I stole or I'm, or I was in jealousy or covetousness. We all know what sins are. And if it happened last night and you've not got it right before the Lord and you feel guilty right now, it's not condemnation. It's God saying, get back in the light. And you can be forgiven and you can start over. And that can be broken over your life. And that's the reason our nation needs an awakening. I don't need another piece of legislation passed to fix America. God will fix America when we get right with God. And the problem with Scrooge and our nation is that Scrooge had reached the point that he no longer felt anything. He no longer felt anything. He was unmoved. I know I'm taking a little bit lengthier time. Just bear with me. This is the last one. But watch it on the screen overhead. He no longer felt anymore. Watch it. Who's that, Doctor? No, sir. The Undertaker. <laughs> You don't believe in letting the grass grow under your feet, do you? Ours is a highly competitive profession, sir. Is it dead yet? I'll have another look if you like. No, don't bother. I'll see for myself. Jacob, well, have they have they seen to you properly? Last rites and all that. Hmm? There's uh, there's nothing I can do. Hmm? Oh, what particularly? Well, hmm? still time. Time? Time time for what? Wrong. Huh? Wrong. Wrong. Oh. Well, we, we can't be right all the time. Nobody's perfect. We've been no worse than the next man. Oh, better if it comes to that. You mustn't reproach yourself, Jacob. We are wrong. What? Save yourself. What? Save myself? Save myself from what? Hmm? Speak up. It says in 1 Timothy 4.2, guys, if you can flash that up there real quick and I'm done. 1 Timothy 4.2, it says, Speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience seared with a hot iron. Do you understand? There comes a moment when if we continue to walk against the light that our consciences become seared and it becomes even more difficult for an awakening. It's interesting that all of what you just saw Scrooge face was not enough to awaken him. See, that's the most amazing thing to me just as I watch humanity kind of go by. I, I'm, I'm, I'm always amazed at what does it take to awaken a person? 
I mean, how many attacks on a nation must we have before we're awakened? How deep a recession must we go before we're awakened? How many times does a person go to jail before they're awakened? How many times does the police come to your house before you're awakened? How many times do the doctors look at you and say something needs to change or be done before you're awakened? Where's your pain threshold? I mean, at what point do we experience an awakening? What's it going to take? Now, God in his mercy in that story finds a way to awaken Scrooge. The question is, how much pain will it be for any one of us? And how much pain is it going to be for our nation to awaken? I'll tell you what I want to do this morning in the just the few moments I have left. And I have just a few. I want to begin to close doors. I want to have a mini encounter here for about the next four or five minutes, and then we'll be at the noon hour. So we're, we're, we're perfectly in order. But would you stand with me, please? And I, I'm going to have just a, just a mini encounter here. And this is what I want to ask of you.